Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the 24th episode of the ninth season of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the weekly podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. Uh, Last week, of course, was Mike Campbell's 74th birthday, and I'd written up a little post that turned out, and I'll talk about this later, was shared a lot. Um, One of the best comments I saw uh, was this one from Linda Morgan, and I wanted to share it with you. As she said, when my son discovered uh, Tom Perry and the Heartbreakers, he was in a car seat in the back seat, three, four years old, listening to my cassettes and eventually CDs. As he grew, he was opened up to all types of music. When he was 15, in 2003, he told me he had some bad news for me. I braced myself. Then he told me, you know all those smoking guitar riffs and just plain tearing it up with the guitar strings you love about Tom Petty? I nodded my head. He continued, well, Mom, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but that is all Tom's guitar player, Mike Campbell. His face was so serious. I just patted his cheek and said, who do you think I named you after, Michael? He still gets a kick out of that. My Michael is a great guitarist too. What a lovely story here, that connection between between family members. I have strong connections with my daughter over some music, and it's great that, that, sort of, uh, that music does that with families. Uh, now, I started writing this episode earlier in the week, and since then, that post about Mike Campbell, the birthday post, kind of blew up a little bit. And so far, it's been shared over 400 times, and it's reached over 300,000 people, which is insane. Um, so, you know, thanks to anyone who did share. Maybe it'll bring a few more people over to the podcast and a little few more people over to our little Tom Petty appreciation community that we have going on here. Last week's song was the toe tapping, making some noise. Uh, I got a lovely comment from JB Kaufman on Facebook, who said, great rocking tune. I never noticed how musically it actually does somewhat fit on this album until your pod. Thank you for that. Thank you, JP. Um, I always thought it kind of stuck out as a rocker needing a rocking song on there near the end, at risk of compromising the messages and feel of the album. A great rocker, an eight as a standalone, but perhaps an unnecessary track on this album for me. Probably necessary for the band, Stan and Mike for sure, and necessary for the fans who came to hear the 70s and 80s rocker. Well, thanks a ton again for that, JP. I mean, it definitely stands out stylistically, but I think, I think I said this in the episode too, sonically, Jeff, Mike and Tom did an amazing job making sure that it didn't stray too far away from the production roots of Into the Great Wide Open. The inimitable Paul Roberts, my executive producer, commented, Great pod, Kev. Thank you so much, Paul. Uh, You're probably right. We do sometimes get too wrapped up in the technicalities of music. Music is about feel, and this one makes me feel good. A great rockabilly tune. Remember, Jeff Lynne has history with rock and roll. ELO famously covered Roll Over Beethoven, and it has been their encore tune for years. A top track, and in my honest opinion, Tom should have ditched the fade out and made it the album closer. And then he rates the song an 8.5. And I think there's some merit to Paul's argument that making some noise could have been the album closer. And I commented that I would love to hear an actual ending for the song rather than the fade out. But the song we're talking about today, Built to Last, is also just tailor-made to finish out an album. And Tom often liked to close his records with a a slower tempo track to lead you out gently. And I'm sure that'll come up when I talk to John Paulson for the album rap later this week. Also, uh, Paul, yes, I'm very familiar with the ELO. I'm very familiar with their cover of Roll Over Beethoven. And I'm very uh, familiar with the, the Beatles version, which I'm sure Jeff Lynne modeled his version on in, you know, to a large degree. Um, a big thanks to Keith Austin, who very kindly said, excellent track, podcast ain't bad either. And look, I'm always really thankful to anyone who listens, um, and especially those people who chat to me online about Tom's music or just music in general. 
Thanks also to Jill Lucas, who posted, uh, look at me, mama, I'm making some noise. One of my absolute faves. Brilliant podcast, as usual. Thanks so much, Jill. Uh, and thanks also to Paul Taylor, who said that the artwork for the Tom Petty Project is amazing. I think I've talked about that a little on the pod before. Most of the artwork you see, other than the old logo and anytime I'm using photos, that's being generated by AI, by this uh, program called Midjourney. You know, if I win the lottery anytime soon, I'll be able to pay an artist to actually do up different ideas for me. But AI is a very cost-effective way of playing with some concepts if you don't sort of generate revenue from your podcast, which I don't. Over on Instagram, uh, the awesome Russell Mark of The Next Source, who was very recently a guest on the show, uh, made a really nice reference to me talking about how rock and roll infects you and moves you, commenting, they love it like you love Jesus. It does the same thing to their soul. Well, we're not at that album yet, but I can't wait to cover that song. One of my very favorites. Um, Still on Instagram, the band Pharmacist said, this is the ultimate track, right? It just rocks. Those lyrics, that Mike Campbell work, it's all there. And that's a comment you can make about so many songs in this catalogue. But like pretty much every other track, somewhere there's a person for whom it's, you know, top of the tree or one of their top five songs. So that connection, is it the ultimate track? Yeah, for someone, it definitely, definitely is. Um, at Couples Rob posted a track I never delved into deeply enough. That, I had an Amplifier 2 line. Fantastic. Also, thanks for the live show links I've never seen before. They always lead down a great rabbit hole. Never saw the Second City show beginning to end. Amazing. And I can't tell you how many times I've been up late recording and editing because I've ended up down, you know, live performance rabbit holes myself. But hey, look, that's the part of the pleasure of doing this podcast. It's part of the pleasure of listening to music, isn't it? Um, as a quick last note, don't forget to go and pre-save the outstanding Matt Jaffe's first single, Twilight of Our Prime, from his upcoming new album. I can't wait to hear what direction Matt has taken with this one. And the title alone sounds like it's going to be a very interesting track. And of course, Matt was another fantastic guest that we had on uh, that I had on this season. Really enjoyed talking to him. I've really got into his music. Go check him out. But anyway, that's enough of me jabbering on about social media. Let's get into some petty talk. This week, we're wrapping up the ninth album in the catalogue already as we discuss Built to Last. As always, there's a link in the episode notes so that you can go and listen to the track ahead of listening to the episode as I don't include the song or full clips of the song in the episode itself due to potential licensing or legal complications. Uh, and to be respectful of Tom's estate and their, you know, their intellectual property. In conversations with Tom Petty, author Paul Zolo asks of Built to Last, is it true that you were annoyed because The Grateful Dead had a song with the same title? Tom responds, yeah, that happens sometimes. You look up and you think you've come up with something and you realize somebody else has done it first. You try not to let it bug you. What bugs you the most is when you write something and you realize it's somebody else's song. That'll happen to me two times a month. I'll be working with something and then realize I'm channeling this melody from somewhere else and then I have to abandon the idea. But there's only so many words and so many notes, so sometimes you do cross somebody else's territory. And when Paul asks, have you found that as the years have gone by, you're better at knowing when you're using somebody else's melody? To which Tom responds, yeah. And when that happens, I just have to throw it away. Paul presses him and asks, throw it away or change it? To which Tom concludes, well, I just usually pitch it and start over. Because if I change a note or two, it's still going to be in my head that it's that other song. And I love that purity of the creative spark that Tom clung to. When you listen to a lot of modern popular music, you can hear straight lifts from different songs and, of course, sampling and downright inclusion of other people's music, which is commonplace today. But Tom clearly always strove to be original and authentic in bringing a new idea to the table. And I love that about him. 
Tom also mentions that this song was uh, the only one from the album that was written while they were at the studio and was difficult to get right, with Tom finally ruminating that I don't know if I really like that one. The track was played 25 times during the album tour in 1991 and lending some credence to Paul Roberts' assertion about, you know, it could have closed the album, Built to Last was always used as the second last song before the show closed with Making Some Noise. The song opens with those mood-defining floor toms and reverb-drenched hand claps. And I'd be curious to learn if, well, if they're hand claps, if they're real or synth or a drum machine, you know, there's a huge delay on them that creates that crazy echo, so it's harder to tell what it actually is. You know, it could have... It could easily have been a really snappy snare drum too, with all those effects plastered on it. It's so heavily processed that I just can't quite discern exactly what it is. And that floor tom, for that matter, could also be a timpani. It sounds so deep and resonant that it, you know you'd almost have to be John Bonham-sized uh, floor tom level to be able to create that sort of um, amount of boom. Now, over the top of that tom snap beat, we have the bass guitar picking out that main progression. Now, I'm not 100% sure if it's how we have seen playing bass on this one though. Howie, Mike, and Jeff Lynn are all credited with playing bass on this album. And to my ear, this one sounds like it might be Jeff Lynn. Uh, Jeff Lynn is also credited with percussion on the album. And as the song was written in the studio, credited to Tom and Jeff, I have a sneaking suspicion that it might only be Tom, Mike, and Jeff playing on this one. Maybe it was after the main session had finished and they were sat around the mixing desk. Tom does tell Paul Zolo that this was the last song finished. So maybe because Tom couldn't find the right beat for the song initially, it ended up coming to life during the mixing of some other track uh, while they were just having downtime. Maybe this was also done in Mike Campbell's garage during a, a late-night session or something. It does have that feel to it. Um, we know that some of the recording on the album did happen back at the scene of the Full Moon Fever crime, so that's my speculation. This one was put together by the Three Musketeers when everyone else had gone home. The other reason I think this might be the case is that during the chorus on the harmonies, I'd be willing to bet that that's Jeff Lynne's voice singing the lower register notes. And I think... Howie maybe and Tom are singing the higher register notes in the second half of the courses, so maybe Howie was brought back in just to overdub some uh, some vocals, but I don't think it's the rest of the band playing on this song. The first verse plays out over top of that drum and bass pattern and no additional instrumentation. The second, starting on I Want Her More Than Diamonds, sees the introduction of a clean tone, palm muted guitar with that same huge delay applied. This guitar is following the bass pattern and we hear the addition of an organ, stabbing the root chords in time with the timpani or tom hits. Uh, that organ is mixed way over in the right channel, so you can pick it out pretty easily by just removing your left earbud. Um, in the chorus, we hear Mike Campbell, I'm assuming, playing what sounds like might be a, a steel guitar. It's being played with a slide guitar, at least, but it, it seems to have a, a fairly distinctive tone that makes it, it kind of sounds like a lap steel, but I don't think it is. Um, it sort of has a wee bit of a ring of a, like a Nashville resonator or something, but I don't think it's that either, so I'm not 100% sure exactly what Mike's playing there. After the chorus, we get back into that main beat with the addition of the organ, just playing the straight chords. Um, we get some more harmonies here, and the slide guitar comes back in again. And in the second chorus, we have the addition of what sounds like little synth stabs, but could just as easily be a heavily processed guitar. So we're two minutes into the song now, and we've had two verses, chorus, two verses, chorus. It's all been very patiently built, and despite that huge delay effect and the big roomy reverb, there's a heck of a lot of space in this song. Gone are the three or four layers of guitar. You know, there's no acoustic in this. There, there, it's quite a, a minimal arrangement in terms of guitar. And instead, the arrangement to this point has been deliberately stripped back, but given a huge amount of character to really let Tom's vocal cut through. The reverb on Tom's vocal is a lot drier and makes it distinct from the, uh, the effects on the instrumentation. And this is a wonderful vocal from Tom too. He sings the majority of the song in that, that nice, easy mid-range that he's so, um, he's so adept at before stretching it thin 
and into that sort of strangle delivery on certain phrases in the chorus. I'll talk about this later, but it's a style somewhat reminiscent of his work on the first two albums. After these verse-chorus iterations, we move into the bridge. And for me, this is the release that I imagine got this song over the line. Um, you can hear how the rhythm of this song had to be precisely what they ended up with, as a straighter back simply wouldn't capture the heart of the song. The bridge here changes to a major fifth, G in this case, alternating with F as the vocal O's croon softly in the background. There are some really nice textures from two different guitars and what sounds like a synth the game playing those sort of arpeggiated chords at double time in the left channel. We have a nice little ninth bar added into this section before we move back into the verse progression and a simply beautiful guitar solo from Mike Campbell. So again, I think a moment like this in the song can really elevate it and sort of get you out of that rut where you're just not too sure how you're gonna how you're gonna craft this thing and get it over the line as as a complete uh, complete track. Into that solo, Mike's playing that slide with a ton of flange and phase. There's delay on there, and there's there's a wah wah pedal he's using to boot. You know, so it's it's yet another solo from Mike that sounds absolutely nothing like anything he's ever played with the Heartbreakers to this point. It's another one of those moments that makes you just sit in awe of how perfect his understanding of what the song needs is. It's deftly and gently played, with the emphasis coming from the effects rather than any virtuosic fireworks. This is something that obviously the U2's The Edge honed into a full art form in the early 80s, but Mike applies it in a far more subtle way here. Possibly my second favourite solo on the album, After Dark of the Sun. Okay, folks, time for your weekly petty trivia. Your question from last week was this. On 1993's Greatest Hits album, which song replaced Something in the Air as the 18th track on the 2008 reissue? Was it A, Stop Dragging My Heart Around, B, Anything That's Rock and Roll, C, Jamming Me, or D, Insider? Well, Jamming Me was certainly the biggest hit that was omitted from the Greatest Hits compilation, and meant that Let Me Up I've Had Enough was the only album not represented on this release. Anything That's Rock and Roll was included as a bonus track on the European release, sequenced um, along with the other tracks from the debut album, and Insider was never actually released as a single, despite being one of two monumental collaborations with Stevie Nicks at that time, and despite having a video produced, and despite being, for me at least, one of the standout tracks in Tom's catalogue. So that only leaves the other track that he recorded Stevie with which was released on her seismic debut solo record, Belladonna, in 1981. So your answer is... Stop dragging my heart around. Your question for this week stays with the Greatest Hits album. Along with the two new tracks, Mary Jane's Last Dance and Something in the Air, which other song from the album was re-released as a single, inexplicably failing to chart on the Billboard or US rock charts? Was it A, Breakdown, B, American Girl, C, listen to her heart, or D, don't do me like that. Okay, back to the song. The solo moves immediately back into the next verse, with the last note of Mike's guitar bleeding over into this next A section. In addition to the organ, drums, and bass, 
the music guitar is now slightly crunchier and playing fuller chords in that staccato rhythm. We're also hearing Mike's solo-toned guitar taking a couple of little single or double note fills here and there, and there's a really nice little turnaround between the two choruses that follow. That wonderful swell of guitar, organ, and vocal still washes us along serenely, but after the eight bars of the first chorus, we get a short single bar and a very brief little clean-toned lick, possibly from Tom this time. Um, it's probably Mike, but it sounds like it's the other guitar, which leads us back into that A minor first chord of the B section. It's such a smooth, unobtrusive little piece of arrangement that I'm sure there would have been big smiles and high fives in the room when they worked that part out. In the second chorus, Tom repeats the title line, or at the end of the second chorus, Tom repeats that title line, Our Love Was Built to Last. And then the instrumentation drops out to leave that rhythm section playing us out to fade. The lyrics in Built to Last are unambiguously hopeful, you would think, and quietly resilient. Perhaps it's Tom's last attempt to build a creative buttress around his failing marriage. Perhaps it's an equal attempt to put up a wall around a band that had gone through a major friction point very recently and were probably still unsure what direction they will be taking from this point on. The lyric feels in some ways like a more introspective compliment to I won't back down. The sentiment is it's kind of the same, really, but the perspective and forcefulness of the emotion is focused inward in this song rather than the outward uh, focus on I won't back down. That song tells the whole world that they'll have to fight to beat Tom Petty this one reassures loved ones of the same. I won't back down is a warning. We were built to last is a commitment. There's an obvious Motown flavor to this one with the heavy production and the rhythm of the piece, but the song also tips its hat back to the Beatles in the way the harmonies are assembled and mixed. It's also there in the way that Tom really croons We Were Built to Last. So it's got that sort of Beatles for sale era feel to it, uh, to my ear. And as I posited, it also throws back in some ways to Tom's earliest days with the Heartbreakers. When he sings, but our love was built to last, he sounds young. He sounds like that same upstart kid who sings, you know, looks. He sounds young. He sounds like that same upstart kid who sang, looks like I've been fooled again. And there's a sort of a superb frailty that Tom conveys in his vocal performance here that it sort of, it almost undercuts that message of reassurance and hope. There's just that very slight edge that leaves you thinking that the narrator is trying to convince himself perhaps as much as he's trying to affirm his relationship to a third party. And if, as I suggested in the episode covering You and I Will Meet Again, this album is the one that began the second half of Tom's career, rather than Full Moon Fever, it is perhaps this song that is the strongest indicator of that. Aside from a potential link to his personal life, he also seems to have the clarity of vision that the heartbreakers are going to be his main concern from this point on. And look, yeah, I know he would record uh, one more album without any of the heartbreakers than Mike Campbell on it, and he did Wildflowers, which was, you know, a solo album, but was the entire band on it. His creative path at this point now was fixed on a specific trajectory that would lead to consistent creative focus and excellence over the next almost three decades. We were built to last, not I. One word packed with a ton of meaning. I feel like I've been a little bit more brief on this episode than those covering many of the songs this season, but I did want to focus more on that meaning behind this one that I infer. And I hope that's okay with you folks. Musically, this one's very simple. And when you listen to it with a certain mindset, that combination of introspection coupled with what just feels like an intimate late night studio session, I, I think this song becomes a little deeper and a little more warming than it might do if you just listen to it as the slower paced album closer Tom often favoured. It's a superficially hopeful song and a more subtly conflicted one. It's a very cool, very different vibe from the rest of the album and takes all the sting out of making some noise. And I think that overall, I can see why you would close an album with this song, but not close a concert. 
Okay, Pennyheads, that's it for this week. Uh, whether or not Built to Last or Making Some Noise should have closed this album, I think the way it reverts back to its opening refrain and fades out makes it perfect for this album as a piece. It drifts off into the distance, into the unknown, into the great wide open. Last week I made the argument that Making Some Noise somehow feels like part of the album despite being rhythmically and tonally quite removed from most of the rest of the songs. And I will say the same thing about this track, to a slightly lesser extent. This one feels deliberately less moulded into the template in order to ensure that the listener knows that Tom isn't done exploring himself musically just yet. And while I don't think this one belongs in that top echelon of songs from Into the Great Wide Open, the wonderfully unique solo and the hopeful yet subconsciously uncertain lyric do mean that I'm going to rate We Were Built to Last a 7 out of 10. Uh, and Lisa Pennington, I hope you guessed that one right. The Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. Go check us out on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet. You know, I always say this, there will be something there that you like. Uh, you can also check out my other podcast, Seaside Pod Review, a Queen podcast that I do with my best friend Randy Woods, who performs all the music you hear in this podcast, uh, as well as the ultimate catalogue clash that I co-host with the hardest working man in podcasting, Corey Morissette. This season, we are, uh, we're covering Metallica, and we're almost done. You should also check out this fantastic podcast. This is Eric Senich, host of Booked on Rock. Join me for deep dive discussions of the greatest stories in rock history from the authors who've written all about them. Ed Van Halen, one of the world's greatest guitarists. He ended on a great note, just like one of his solos. And those who were there when they happened. I'm fishing and I'm hearing Sweet Home, Alabama, six miles away I'm fishing. Find Booked on Rock wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or just go to bookedonrock.com. Yeah, Eric Sanich, man, such a brain, such a great articulate guy, fantastic interviewer. He's had some great guests on there, including some of the people that I've also talked to. Um, so go check out Eric. It's, it's a great podcast. Uh, don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. Go follow, like, subscribe, do all those things. Go to Spotify and leave a rating, you know, do all that kind of stuff. And more, more, you know, more importantly, keep talking to me on social media and keep sharing things because we get the word out that way. I'll keep reading your comments out on the show. Um, as long as you keep posting them. And as a weekly reminder, the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. If you're looking for Tom's music, please visit official streaming platforms or go to your local independent record seller. Grab some physical media. It's a great thing to spend your money on. If you're looking for official merchandise, go to TomPetty.com. And if you're looking for merchandise for this show, please go to TomPettyProject.com. Don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook. Um, also go check out Tom Petty Radio on SiriusXM. Great station, tons and tons of Tom Petty content, obviously. Uh, until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week to wrap up Into the Great Wide Open with my friend and season-end co-host, John Paulson. Bye-bye. <laughs>